The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Well, we're back for another episode of The Unlikely Innovators. Uh, Steve and I had the great pleasure of chatting with Gordon McCauley today, who's the president and CEO of Admari Bioinnovations. Uh, this was a great episode, I think, you know, in terms of understanding you know, the state of the life sciences and biotech sector, not only in Canada, but across the world. But it was also an opportunity for Steve to use the term hewers of wood and drawers of water and having actually our guest resonate and say, I've used that in an op-ed. So that was a great moment for me to witness that kind of come together because it was by happenstance, uh, but so great when those connections happen. Steve, Yeah, well, so here's the thing. I know you're making fun of me slightly, but no, I, will, no. I will rise to the challenge and I'll say this. One day, my old timey uh, phrases will uh, will be appreciated by those around me, and I think today was a good start. But no, it was great having uh, Gordon on. I think um, I was going to say something, uh, you know, misty eyed about the long tradition of in Canadian history of uh, medical innovation, starting with Banting and Best. But I think diving right in uh, makes a lot of sense. It was it was a great episode. I thought. I agree with you. So I think let's go straight to Gordon. So we're now back and we're pleased to be joined by Gordon McCauley, who is the president and CEO of Edmari Bioinnovations. Uh, Gordon was appointed uh, to those roles in 2016 after serving on the board for four years. He's an accomplished life science investor and executive. And we're really happy to have him join us today. But before we get to Gordon, uh, a little bit more about him. Gordon has served as president and CEO of Viable Health Networks Corporation, a national healthcare service business. Allen Therapeutics, uh, a neuroscience biotechnology company that developed novel therapeutics from preclinical to global phase three studies before uh, being sold. And as co-founder partner of NDI Capital, institutionally backed life science investment fund. He's also been a senior executive of several successful healthcare enterprises and a senior advisor to several prominent Canadian political leaders. Uh, Gordon earned a BA in political science from McMaster University, one of my uh, alma maters, uh, an MBA with honors from IMD in, in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, and holds the ICDD certification from the Institute of Corporate Directors and the Robin School of Business at the University of Toronto. And now he is a guest of the Unlikely Innovators. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. That's got to be the best part of my bio to be a guest of the uh, of the podcast, no? Well, <laughs> now you can include it in all your future bios, right? So Exactly. <laughs> So, you know, we always start with uh, when we have guests on the show about their journey and how they, you know, came to be where they are in their, in their current work. And one of the things that jumped out to Steve and I is, you know, how do you go from studying political science to investing in science and biotech? I think that's probably an interesting way to start the combo. So can you maybe talk about your journey going from one world to the other that you're currently in now? I like to say that I'm the ironic poster child for science because the only science in my background is, is political science. <laughs> One of the things that I've discovered is that affords me the privilege of asking really smart people really dumb questions. And one of the things that is fascinating about the business of biotech and the business of life sciences in general is that you need to be able to distill those really complicated issues down to very straightforward commercial questions. And because I've been able to ask those questions out of necessity, it's kind of kind of helped me uh, kind of helped me get there. Listen, the, the, the real story is that um, I, as, as you so kindly know, where I started out my career in public policy and public affairs, um, I uh, then transitioned to, uh, to business deliberately. Um, 
well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a small hiccup in the roadblock there. As, as the politician that I was working for at the time likes to say, uh, he left office because the people got sick of him. Um, it was for health reasons, the people got sick of him. Um, and so I was, I was looking for something to do, and, and I transitioned into a public affairs role in industry, which is kind of a logical thing. And then I decided I wanted to go into a, into a, a formal kind of line item business role. And the challenge in doing that, of course, is you got to think of industries where there is a connection between that public uh, policy um, expertise or knowledge and, and the business itself. And there's a handful of businesses where that makes a lot of sense, or at least it did a million years ago. And I came to the conclusion that I wanted to do well, but I need to do good. I need to do things that are making the world a better place. And I, I know that sounds kind of idealistic. But frankly, it's it served me reasonably well and allowed me to, to work in a bunch of businesses that were trying to do really big things for people. And we, we always talk in our business, as I've talked about in, in every business I've been involved with, at the end of the day, it's about somebody's mom or somebody's dad, uh, patients, families, caregivers, and making a difference in their lives. And I find that a really motivating purpose and it, it fills me with... Uh, with excitement coming to work every day. That's great. And I was going to say that I think there's a lot of similarities uh, in our paths. Steve and I are both historians by training, and we primarily work uh, with engineers and technologists in our line of work now. So we are definitely afforded the latitude to ask a lot of those questions <laughs> that uh, that you probably wouldn't get an engineer to ask. But because of, you know, I think the the worlds that we live in now, I think we've certainly learned a lot in our journeys. But uh, But I think, yeah, different perspective allows you, I think, to tackle things differently. And I think adds value to the, to the entire process. Totally, totally. Yeah, our engineering team, Gordon, often gives us just enough rope to hang ourselves with, right? When we... <laughs> but, 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 but confident that you wouldn't know how to put the rope together so you're safe? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, I had the uh, privilege uh, in my last line of work to work with uh, some biotech uh, companies. I used to work for a group called OCE, Ontario Centers yep. of Excellence. And we had an yep. investment portfolio that, that sort of focused on med tech and bioinnovations. So I got to see a bit of that, but could you sort of, going back to a political statement, could you sort of give us a state of the union of where the current state of biotech and bioinnovation, this, where the sector is in Canada right now? Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about Canada and actually why Edmari exists is that we have this extraordinary research enterprise that punches well above its weight on any metric you want to, you want to choose. And, and there are good objective third-party metrics like the World Intellectual Property Office and, and others that show that Canada uh, has a much stronger research enterprise than its relative uh, population size would suggest. What we've done a lousy job of historically is translating that extraordinary research enterprise into a sustainable life sciences industry. And so, you know, when you go to those objective measures, the inputs, the, the, the research enterprise we have, we punch well above our weight. When you go to the outputs, which is essentially the commercial outcome from it, uh, we punch below our weight. Simple data point, if I can, if I can bore you with numbers, you know, the Canadian uh, life sciences enterprise is something like a $78 billion industry, about half a percent of GDP. The U.S. is like a 700 and some odd uh, billion dollar uh, or multiple of that um, industry at about 4% of GDP. 
of the GDP forward, small change, I think. So even the 10x application that we're all so used to doing in Canada doesn't apply. So we have this extraordinary opportunity. The good news is we have all of the requisite parts, right? We've got spectacular universities, research institutes, researchers themselves. We have business people engaged in the space. And we actually have a public policy uh, mandate uh, in, in the key ge geographies in the country to actually deliver on it. So it's a really exciting uh, moment in time, in my view, probably more exciting than it has ever been in the history of this business over the course of the last uh, 30 some odd years in Canada. I've been involved in it for 20 some odd. It's, it's a really, really exciting moment right now. And, and kind of jumping off that in, in terms of exciting things that are happening, um, what are some of the trends you're seeing, you know, when it comes to biotech and bioinnovation in Canada um, that you could share with the listeners that may not necessarily be as familiar with the space uh, as, as you obviously are? Let me, let, me, let me give you the opportunity to ask that question slightly differently, right? Because the, Canada is 3% of the global market. So at the end of the day, the question has to be, what's exciting going on in the world where Canada actually has an advantage? Right? And there are, because of that extraordinary research enterprise, Canada has some extraordinary advantages. So in uh, genomics, for example, we're amongst the global leaders. In cellular therapies, we're amongst the world leaders. We pretty much invented AI and machine learning and, and are doing an extraordinary job of applying that to a whole bunch of different uh, healthcare applications. And, and there are um, exciting developments in neurology, oncology, other places. Radio therapeutics, an area where, where we have a, a particular, particularly large investment, is a place where Canada has a globally leading um, uh, infrastructure that, that we can be exploiting. So there's a lot going on in Canada right now where there are very specific globally competitive leadership positions that we, uh, we should be taking advantage of. Uh, Gordon, a, a question that sort of just occurred to me as we were talking and as I was listening to you speak, um, does the nature of the biotech startups that we produce in Canada, is it at all influenced by the single payer system that we're in? Do you see a different flavor emerging in the States and other places where uh, where that doesn't exist? Does that play in it, into it at all? Or is it based on the, you know, the, uh, the sort of uh, the researcher focus that then gets commercialized in the, in the private sector? So I wouldn't say that it plays into the nature of the businesses that are created in Canada. And I'll come back and talk about that in a second, because again, it has to be globally relevant. Where it provides very unique opportunities is in the, um, the clinical research application. So in running clinical trials, which are obviously very sophisticated, very complicated enterprises, when you have a single payer system or let's be honest, 13 different single payer systems, uh, you, can, you can work within those systems very efficiently. And a number of provinces have done really good jobs with their systems to uh, facilitate uh, clinical trials. So that's, that's, I think, where you tend to see the, the impact. And, and it is a, a, a unique advantage that um, not everybody, certainly not the, not the U.S. has. The thing that has changed in the way we create companies in Canada has been a, it's almost an attitudinal approach that I'm, I'm really excited to have been part of. Where, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago after the global financial crisis, you know, 
the, the, the whole world was in a, in a tough shape uh, economically and, and where you have uh, high-risk ventures, uh, capital dried up. So, so companies and founders learn to, to do just enough, right? To do just to get to a point where you might attract a global pharma partner and then kind of sell it off or just show some human proof of concept before you have enough clinical data to actually, actually get approved. And that was a necessary thing given the, given the time. What happened, however, is that capital started returning to the space, and we were a little slower than we should have been as a country in changing the kind of companies that, that we created. What's really exciting now is we're seeing um, my colleagues, venture capital groups as well, uh, investing in uh, really robust Canadian-based biotech enterprises that are really trying to challenge technology in a way to, to prove it in a globally relevant way so that they can take, uh, they can take it forward. The, the, the best data point of that, I used to say five years ago that the proof of how much opportunity there was relative to, to the research enterprise is that Canada is the only uh, pharmacy, advanced pharmaceutical market in the world without a research-based anchor company. You know what's cool? That's not the case anymore. There are, there are three of those companies in Canada today, and there are probably, depending on how you want to count them, 10 or 12 others that absolutely have the potential to be uh, anchor companies in Canada. And, and that will change, right? I mean, the, the nature of this business is companies do uh, get, get, uh, get bought and sold. But if you develop a, a cadre of, I don't know what the real number is, 15, 20 uh, putative anchor companies, it starts to become a really robust ecosystem that starts to be sustainable and not self-perpetuating, but you know what I mean. Somebody sells the company, they go back into another technology that they find compelling and try and, and try and do the same thing over and over again. And that's where you see the really compelling uh, clusters in the world in, uh, in uh, Boston or in the Bay Area or in Cambridge in the UK. It's that, that's the kind of uh, repetition you get. And it's really exciting to me that we're on that path now. Well, let me ask a, what I hope is an interesting question. Um, we, we have well, a company. I'll be the judge, I'll be the yeah, judge yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, please, and, please, <laughs> and please do uh, judge it. We have, we have a company in Sudbury. Uh, they split their time between Sudbury and Toronto called Flosonics Medical. And they're a med tech firm that... Uh, that does uh, mass mass blood flow monitoring in a patch, and they're from a community that's better known for its mining innovation. Um, and it's not an obvious place where you'd see a company like that startup. We have a, a couple of others. Have you had any success? So you just talked about those really interesting clusters that develop because of that repetition, repetition, and the anchor clients that they're able to attract, and and how that sort of symbiotic relationship works. Have you had any success in finding? innovative companies worth investing in that were sort of off the beaten path that weren't in Toronto, Edmonton, Montreal, uh, Vancouver. Have you, have you had any successes like that? Well, we actually found one in your neck of the woods called Flosonics that uh, we're, we're an investor in and, and uh, we're, we're a seed investor in and are really excited about it. It's, it's a really good example of a, uh, of a company with a really unique technology that pulls together 
different parts of expertise and, and then there's a certain amount of engineering to that there's a certain amount of medical device logic to that there's a certain amount of just pure uh, life sciences uh, research to it and and what they're doing is really interesting right there it's it's a it's a monitoring patch and patch I mean, it's, it's essentially a monitoring kind of band-aid that helps you understand blood flow in patients that can't typically respond where the nature of that blood flow is critically important literally to life or death of those patients sepsis patients being a really good example so I mean, I'm, I'm kidding obviously I, I, Flosonics is something we're, we're really excited about uh, look we, we have um, state the obvious right the lion's share of our effort goes into Vancouver Toronto and Montreal roughly in equal parts um, and the truth is about those kinds of life sciences hubs, um, you tend to see them around very large research uh, universities or research enterprises. And if you look at the kind of money that comes out of CIHR and similar agencies, it predominantly goes into those three and then, and then cascades down to a, to a couple of other hubs. One of the things that's really cool about Canada as you know, Many people, historians like you guys, who are smarter than me, um, have said, you know, it's an experiment with with the population laid out a, a, in a hundred kilometer ribbon across the U.S. border. So we figured out a long time ago, long before the pandemic taught us to use all of this technology, <laughs> how to collaborate really effectively across the country. And so it's it's something that that actually distinguishes the Canadian enterprise so so we have um, uh, investments and relationships uh, in in Victoria in um, rural parts of Alberta in Kingston Ontario uh, I'm on the board of a really uh, cool company called Biovectra in in PEI it's a very large employer in PEI 500 and some employees uh, on the island um, so there is a lot going on uh, across Canada outside of those of those core hubs. And again, because Canada was forced by geography and history to figure out how we work together across the country, it's kind of a unique advantage for us to take advantage to, to, to take uh, under our wing. And I, I think we've kind of you've talked about this throughout some of the uh, some of the questions so far in terms of Canada has I think all the parts necessary to, to, to have this, uh, this biotech and bioinnovation, you know, cluster, um, and, and be a leader on the global stage. And then, you know, Steve mentioned the example that, you know, Flowsonics came out of Sudbury. Some other examples I could think of, you know, in town are a company called Verve, uh, technologies as well as RNA diagnostics. They're doing some really interesting things. And again, in a city that's not typically known for that type of work. Um, but in terms of like finding those companies in those, uh, off the path, you know, locations like Sudbury, um, we obviously know that I think having those academic institutions and those research hospitals are key, but what are some of the other key pillars to building a successful biotech, you know, startup cluster ecosystem, whether it's in a, a community or like in a country like Canada? And I know that you've, you've mentioned this already, but just, you know, what would be your takeaways in terms of like, what are the key ingredients that we need to see either locally or nationally? And what's missing? Yeah, what's... Uh, uh, those are both really important questions. And when I, when I look at our strategy, I mean, it's because our vision is Canadian life sciences leading the world, which is absolutely positive and absolutely possible. Um, when we think about how we execute on that, on that vision, our, our strategy has three parts. We build companies, we build ecosystems, and we build talent. And, and let me give you a sense of what we mean by each of those, because it's really an answer here to your mm -hmm. question. 
Um, at the end of the day, we build companies typically doing uh, one of two things. We find really compelling uh, technology science, usually in Canadian academia, wherever it is across the country. And we, and we have a team of folks who go out um, and, and meet one-on-one -on -one with investigators and, and uh, research organizations and, and look for uh, compelling science. And we bring it into our hands in our proprietary labs. We have 50 drug development, uh, commercially trained drug development scientists who then advance it to a point where we can actually create a company out of it and then we spin out that company. Um, the other thing we do is invest directly, which is what we did in the, in the case of Flosonics, typically as a, as a seed investor. Um, pretty sure we're the largest seed investor by a, by a long way in uh, Canadian life sciences. And so when you look at that part of our business, we've done that 27 times. Um, those companies have uh, attracted $1.4 billion worth of real risk capital. They're worth about $3 billion today and they employ about 1,000 people. So, so we know if you do that kind of outreach about, and think about building investable companies in a robust way that have the potential to grow and scale in Canada, that you can do it very effectively. The second thing you need is an ecosystem and we think about ecosystems two ways we think about physical ecosystems and we think about virtual ones so a physical ecosystem we have two facilities in uh, in vancouver we have 40,000 square feet in montreal we have 200,000 square feet that is designed to be the home for scaling companies and we have companies in in those facilities that range from about five employees up to about 150 employees and i'll tell you I mean, there, there's actually good literature on this. You, you guys have no doubt seen it. There is something in the situational alchemy of having a little company beside a big company and, you know, meeting up at the, literally meeting up at the coffee machine. There's real value in that. And it also affords us the opportunity to do all of the, the animation around that, the presentations, the lunch and learns, the different, the different sorts of things that are of, of interest to those companies to help them grow that they might not otherwise... Uh, have access to. Uh, in terms of virtual ecosystems, we, we do a whole lot of, of different uh, engagements with organizations across the country. We also have something called the Admiring Online Community, which is a dedicated digital community to about 2,000 active people in the life sciences uh, uh, in Canada today. Um, and, and that really brings together everybody very, very effectively. We know the demand there our facilities, um, i tell you, we, we expanded our Montreal facility. It was 150,000 square feet. We added 50,000 square feet, commercially financed, by the way, that was 100% leased before we opened the doors. We know there is a demand for that. And so we're, we'd like to see more of that across the country and are working with partners across the country to figure out how we, how we do more, more of that. And then the third piece is the talent. Right? I mean, everybody, it doesn't matter if you're at, at uh, McDonald's or McDonald's Deadwire, everybody in the country is having a challenge about finding talent. And it's, and it's true around, around the world. It's particularly true in this, in this industry right now. So we have something we call the Admari uh, Academy, which focuses on providing high value, high impact training to key niches of the, uh, of the life sciences ecosystem. 
So we have the Executive Institute, which is like a 10-month working MBA for mid-career people. You think about these companies we're creating and these, and these buildings we're filling up. We also need people trained in Canada to actually lead those companies, right? So it, it all kind of fits together. That has been a spectacular success. And we're, we're just about to announce the, uh, the fifth annual cohort of, uh, of uh, 20 participants in that program. 50% men, 50% women, by the way, and which has always been an easy in that, in that part of it. So that's important on the leadership front. We have something called the Bioinnovation Scientist Program. This is looking at the other end of people's careers, early career people who've graduated with a master's or a PhD, and they're trying to figure out how to apply that expertise in a commercial context. You guys would understand that academic science is dramatically different from commercial science. And there's no judgment to that. They have different objectives. But you need to understand how to apply that expertise in a commercial context. The Canadian Council of Academies did a study four years ago um, degrees of success, it's called. And it looked at the PhD grads in Canada. Only 25% of the PhDs that graduate in Canada work in industry. And, and here we have an industry that has a demand for something like 30,000 high quality jobs over the course of the next five or six years. So that's that program. We started at, in the very early days of the pandemic, kind of as a beta test, because we had a whole bunch of people sitting at home in front of screens. And we thought here was here was something to, to that, that might uh, that might resonate. It went from nothing to 300 and some odd uh, participants in that program over the course of about a four or five month period. So it's, it's been a, a big success. We have postdoc programs, co-op programs uh, as well. And we're also uh, a national partner with uh, something called CASEL, the Canadian Alliance for Skills Training and Life Sciences, which, which uh, has brought to Canada the gold standard in biomanufacturing training. So you put all that together. Again, the reason we know that's working out of the 550 some odd alumni of the Admari Academy, 96% of them work in industry today. So coming back to your question, you need companies, you need robust question, companies that have the capacity to compete globally, but have roots in Canada where they can grow and scale in Canada. You have to have somewhere for those companies to, to grow and scale into until they can afford their own um, uh, commercial relationship. Obviously, they, but they got to they, they, they can grow where they can command their own relationship and you have to figure out how you get the get the people together to uh, to populate those companies you do those three things you're going to have an extraordinary life sciences ecosystem in this country sounds like a pretty great recipe um bu building upon that um i think i would ask this question a couple different ways and and we can sort it out but um you know canada has long been sort of seen as you know, like a resource basket for the rest of the world and for the United States. And that's starting to change. We're no longer seen as, you know, hewers of wood and drawers of water necessarily. Um, so first I wanted to ask you what you think the global perception of Canada is uh, in this sector in particular. And then do you think uh, all those wonderful things you guys are doing and, and other groups and other companies and you know, around, around Canada, do we have what it takes to be a leader in this space? around the world uh, long-term. So you can attack that however you want. You know, I actually love the basis of the question because I wrote an op-ed three, four years ago uh, 
uh, well, pre-pandemic, so I guess probably closer to four years ago now. It's that vortex of time. It's yeah. hard to figure out <laughs> yeah. when, when it actually was. Um, pre-pandemic, I wrote an op-ed that uh, asked the question, were we going to be the, the hewers of wood and drawers of, of water in, a modern, in the modern economy? And we had such uh, extraordinary advantages that it would be a shame if, if we didn't seize them. And, and again, one of the things I find so exciting is the public policymakers have responded in a, in a fairly major way. I mean, the, to be... To, be, to give credit where it's due, the government of Canada has invested a couple hundred million dollars in, uh, in what, we, what we do. Um, so uh, I think there is extraordinary potential there. Um, how does the world see Canada? Frankly, they see Canada exactly the way that, that, that we hope that they would see us. They see us as a stable, safe, um, strong uh, rule of law kind of, uh, kind of economy where you can do interesting and exciting things. I'm not sure that Canadians appreciate, though, how unique some of our advantages are around uh, AI and ML, for example, globally leading capacity, around uh, genomics. I, I chair something called the CGEN, which is Canada's Genomic Enterprise, which, which is based it in, uh, in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal as well, ironically. Um, and, and, and we are absolutely amongst the global leaders in that space. Um, the cell therapies, uh, there are some extraordinary things happening. Back at Mac, uh, frankly, some, some of our, our colleagues are, are building pretty compelling work at the McMaster Innovation uh, Park um, mm-hmm. and, and, and big manufacturing capacity. So uh, I think Canadians, if they had the chance to uh, step in uh, the shoes of, uh, of those around the world, they would actually be quite surprised by how unique our advantages are and how globally competitive our advantages are. So, so again, I, I know I keep coming back to it, but it's just what gives me such great excitement about where we are and the opportunity that we have. You know, Gord, I was going to say, I'd like to say that Steve read that op-ed because you both use the same terminology, <laughs> but I've heard him say hewers of wood and jars <laughs> of water many times throughout the years that I knew that that's where he was going to go with it. But that's such a great coincidence. We'll have to you find that you, piece. Look, look, you can't, you can't have taken more than, than, uh, or less than two Canadian uh, history courses and not have used hewers of wood, jars of oh. water in some <laughs> paper sometime. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, Steve and I were both uh, focused on Canadian history and, and natural resource history in Canada. So it's definitely a term that we saw a lot over the years. So it's great that <laughs> we're able to organically bring that in and you, and it resonated with you. So that's great. That's a podcast win for today. Um, you know, Gordon, you've been so generous with your time, but before we let you go, and we're going to give you a big open-ended question, you can kind of take it in any direction you want. Um, but obviously, it's a very exciting time for the sector right now, but future thinking, looking ahead, if you had a crystal ball, like what's next, you know, for either Admari or for the sector as a whole when it comes to life sciences, biotech, like what, what are you most excited about, um, you know, coming down the pipe in the next couple of years? So one of the things that I think is... Um fascinating almost as a as a sociologist maybe not as a as a history person one of the things that's fascinating about the pandemic is how effectively it laid bare weaknesses in society and and inequalities in society weaknesses in business plans that that um, were covered up by by lots of revenue or cheap capital or or other things uh, like that and, and there are tons of examples of that. I mean, who would have thought five years ago that uh, people with 
significant investments in commercial real estate would be would be crying the crying the blues, right? I mean, it, it was it was almost a utility kind of um, reliable investment. In amongst all of that kind of turning the world upside down, one of the other things it taught us is the capacity of science and the capacity, frankly, of Canadian science to lead the world, right? And, and so if, if you think about every single vaccine in the world in response to this pandemic has a little bit of Canada company in Vancouver called AQS, right? And that in a classic science way, I mean, Peter Cullis, who, who uh, is one of the scientific founders of that, that company and a, and a great pioneer in this space, Peter has been working in that space for 40 years, right? To the point where people were sort of saying, oh, I don't know, you know, Peter, really, do we still have to talk about uh, uh, lipid nanoparticles? Like, oh, you know? Lots of I mean, he's won every every prize but the big one, right? Lots of gossip about does is is that coming? And most recently, the Garrett Bear, which is which is a very exciting uh, harbinger for the for the future. So, it taught us about what we can do, what science can do, and and how effectively and how quickly we can work. And now, not just in Canada, but around the world. I mean, anybody that has more than thirty seconds knowledge of the vaccine industry knows how bloody hard and long it is to, uh, it takes to develop a, a vaccine. And somehow scientists around the world figure out how to do it in a year. <laughs> I mean, like, that's absurd. Again, it's, it's the kind of thing, it, again, you teleport yourself back five years ago, people would have said, you can't do that. It's not even a moonshot worthy theory. It's so absurd. And they developed it in a year. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things, there's a lot of negative about the pandemic. A lot of things we've learned about each other and about society and about humans that aren't pretty, pretty attractive, aren't very attractive at all. However, there are a few things I think are really exciting about what it's taught us we can do. And again, from a very Canadian perspective, the capacity that Canada has to respond to those sorts of things. And, and certainly not worth the price of the pandemic. But if you're going to find something positive to come out of it, that's a, that's about as positive as it gets. Wow! I think what we'll do is leave it there. My gosh, that was <laughs> such a, uh, a an inspire. And I don't say this lightly. I guess I'm not being flippant, but that was an inspirational way to leave it. I think, Gordon, Thank and uh, and I really do. Uh, you know, people listening to this should have optimism, not only for for where we're going in the world and you know future pandemics, but also. Uh, you know where the uh, state of the bio innovation sort of economy is in Canada. So, again, well, we and, to... and they and they might have optimism for history graduates and poli sci graduates too. <laughs> Who knows? Well, someone, yeah, someone's got to do the talking, right? Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. And again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, our, our listeners will look forward to this episode, I'm sure. But it was great having you on today. Hey, thanks for your time. I really enjoyed the discussion. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gordon. Well, Steve, I don't, I'm not making fun of you because I thought it was a really great <laughs> reference and it obviously did land with Gordon. Gordon I liked could, it. He, I, he loved it, but I, what yeah. I was going to say, and I didn't want to use it at the beginning because I wanted to set up our guest properly, um, was that before, before you said that in my mind, I said, he's going to say hewers of wood and jars of water. And I think that's honestly because 
we probably heard Mark Kuhlberg, uh, <laughs> one of our professors at Laurentian, Shout probably out. used that, you know, over the years. Um, friend of the show. Friend of the show, Mark Kuhlberg. So again, Hewers of Wood, Jars of Water. I knew you were going there. I'm glad you went there and it paid off. Well, and you know what? I'll never go there again as a result. I don't... Uh... <laughs> Like I was going to say something about the Staples thesis, perhaps. No, that was, that would oh, be Harold, inappropriate. Harold I mean, <laughs> Harold Innes, I think uh, maybe if I could reveal, I feel like oftentimes in the outro, you reveal how much of a nerd you are. So, yeah. and I feel like I haven't done that enough, although like I'm in a law office surrounded by Lego. So I think, you know, if you were to see me. Yeah. And it's spilled that. over into my office. <laughs> if only the listeners could see, I'm like the offsite venue for Mike's spillover of Lego. So I have Lego across the top of my office as well, because his is too full. It is a little, it is, a, it's a problem, but what I was going to say is that I had, uh, at some point in my history journey, I had made Harold Innes trading cards, um, like a baseball player. I had a picture of Harold Innes, you know, the progenitor of the Staples thesis. I had his highlights on the back of books that he had penned. It was, yeah. Sorry, sir. You, you made this? I paid money to have these cards made online and then sent to my house. And I don't know where they are now. There was more than one. Oh, I think I gave them out to people. <laughs> so that's uh, that takes the cake, but you know what? We should do that again. We should make trading cards of all the guests on our the show. Unlikely innovators. Yes. Yeah. That's That'd actually awesome. a good idea. Um, yeah. Unlike my idea, which is a bad idea, but, but all uh, good ideas start with bad ideas. <laughs> I guess maybe, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I think just to kind of go back, because again, it's, this, this wasn't meant to be kind of, uh, we lay bare our, our, you know, our inner our about Harold Innes and the, the frontier thesis and, and all these great things that we learned, uh, once upon a time, but I think just kind of going back and you said this at the end, but I think, uh, you know, the way that Gordon kind of, I think put together the state of things in Canada, but I think also a call to action that we have all of the parts and pieces in place and a lot of these communities, in like Montreal, Toronto, and and uh, in Vancouver, but again, I think he also pointed the example that it's happening in other locales off the beaten path, like Sudbury. Yeah. That again, I think if all of these things are moving together and working together, like Canada can be the global leader. I think his point about how the pandemic has taught us, you know, the things that we can do, and I think his point about how there's a little piece of Canada in all of those vaccines, I think is really great, and I think yeah. is inspirational. That again, we can become you know, that global leader in, in the fields of uh, life sciences, biotech. So again, I think, you know, you did a great job um, kind of putting that together for us today. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I didn't know the extent to which, uh, to which uh, his company was involved in doing, in doing what they're doing, but it sounds like just a really great enterprise and he really laid bare, you know, sort of the impact they're having. So it's, I'm, I'm glad uh, folks like Gordon are out there to sort of squire these companies and, and researchers uh, towards commercialization and implementation. Cause I think, uh, oftentimes they need it. You know, he said 25% of PhDs don't end up working in industry. That means they're in academia, right? So um, I think uh, it's it's certainly not what you're trained to do when you're when you're doing your PhD to become you know the next scientific director at a at a med tech firm, right? So I'm glad that there's places uh, places like this that uh, the companies can go to uh, to commercialize. Anyway, uh, thanks again, Gordon, for, for jumping on today. And it was, uh, I think, a great chat. And we'll see everyone on the next episode of The Unlikely Innovators. See you next week. Thanks for tuning Two. in. Give Two us off. five stars. Bye. <laughs> the Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel, presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.